In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was contrasting as what God has had men write on pages and tablets versus what Jesus speaks written on his heart, the living word, the word become flesh. He notes this about violence against each other. Matthew 5, 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. See, I've noted before that at least what this does in real time on this planet, if you get hit on one side, at least what this does is it stops the cycle of violence that continues with more violence. If I get hit and I hit him back, he's gonna hit me because I hit him back. So I turn the other cheek and at least it stops my part in the cycle of violence. We may still get hit, but it won't be because we hit them back. So you will note that Jesus takes the word on the page By the way, written in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. But what he does is he re-identifies it. He repurposes it. He fulfills it in his love. And just in case we think this only applies to physical violence, well, Jesus takes uh, in his heart, it takes the law even further than we could ever imagine. In verse 21 of the same chapter, you've heard that it was said of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Anger in the heart of Jesus leading to the insult leading an insult that can make words the same judgment as murder. So the major theme of the re-identity of the law, at least in Matthew's gospel, has to do with one contrast, and that's the contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world here. Violence, anger, insults, escalation, that gets things done in this world, doesn't it? It has to. In a world like this where only the strong survive, this is what we're left with. It has to get results. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, though, it gets how many results? None. You get nowhere in the kingdom of heaven using these tactics and these rules. And in our series on Jesus' parables, Matthew's special way of dealing with, say, uh, the single citizens of this world, the outsiders, dealing with the outsiders, and, and Jesus using his outside voice, which is the parables, the language that he uses on those who are outside, those who are citizens only of this kingdom, kingdom of the world. The parables and the kingdom are all mixed in. Remember the idea of parables is to look here to see there. It's a side-by-side comparison, the illustration of a parable is. We look at the kingdom of this world in order to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus puts them side-by-side that we can contrast, that we can come to conclusions. Only one thing that I didn't point out about the kickoff last week of Matthew's parables, the ones that Matthew shares uh, 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 
only his own, he's the only one that shared the parable of the tares is the way that it began. I didn't concentrate on the way that it began. He put before them, therefore, another parable, the kingdom of heaven may be like or may be compared to. See, in fact, in moving on with Matthew's sharing of the parables, the mustard seed, the yeast in the dough, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, the dragnet, they all begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. As a matter of fact, after the fourth one, he actually says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Of the 26 times Matthew uses the term and then describes the kingdom of heaven, 13 of those explanations are in parables. Over half of Matthew's references to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus uses parables to describe it. So knowing what we know about parables then, who are these parables for the kingdom of heaven for? They're for those who live outside the kingdom of heaven. They're those who only have single citizenship, citizenship in the kingdom of this world. And in those 26 times in all of Matthew, Jesus never gives an exact description, location, or time of the kingdom of heaven. All we know about it is that it isn't here. It just isn't here. See, it's not here in a complete sense. And the parables point to here to see there. The outside voice of the parables is the voice or the language of the kingdom. It describes the rule of the kingdom. It describes the governance of the kingdom. And it's often opposite of what it is in the kingdom of the world. Who's happy in the kingdom of heaven? Everybody who's miserable here. The poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, seekers of righteousness, persecuted children, they're the ones that are most happy in the kingdom of heaven. Those that are happy of the kingdom of this world, J.B. Phillips did his own translation of his own beatitudes for the kingdom of this world and he called it, happy are the pushers. Blessed are the pushers. Blessed are the people who have money and power and numbers. Blessed are those where majority always rules. Nothing wrong with that in a world like this. Only the strong survive, as I pointed out. If that's all there was, then these rules would certainly be it. They would be prudent to follow. We, though, have a problem, though, don't we? We're citizens of another kingdom. An inside circle of Jesus' disciples and followers and gospel spreaders. That's who we claim to be. That's what makes us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when we on the inside use insider information on those who are outside, my question last week was, are we really sharing the kingdom the way it's supposed to be shared? Last week I asked us to consider who belongs and who doesn't. Who stays and who gets kicked out. Who it's offered to and who it isn't. The parable of the terrors. But we remember Jesus telling this about the kingdom. He was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, 
Or there it is. See, you won't point anywhere in the kingdom of the world and say, there's the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of God, he says, is among you. Religionists, those who only worship the word that the word is written on, the page, they want the kingdom where they want it. They want it in their way. The reward they get for being holy and self-righteous was to be able to recognize the signs of the Messiah, the location of the Messiah, and it was all based on their knowledge, their interpretation of the prophetic scriptures, their privilege that they got by being blessed by God because they were rich, because they were schooled, because they were holy. Jesus, again, confounds the application of the kingdom of the world standards to the kingdom of heaven citizenship. It's not a particular location, but it's one that is already walking among us. Not based on observable signs, but on the king bringing the kingdom to earth and offering it to everyone who would believe. Even those who don't recognize the signs or even recognize him. So in the parables that we look at today, I want you to consider one thing. There's one thing that as I looked at these parables to be able to move on, one word just kept popping up and it has for years on me every time I come across these and that word is volume. At what volume do the parables speak? See, the reason I ask is because there seems to be a volume to the kingdom of this world. What is the one volume that gets things done in the kingdom of this world. Loud, louder, and loudest. And I'm sorry I'm yelling when I say that, but I'm making my point, right? There seems to be a volume that gets things done. It's not just sound, though. It's also visibility. Even the uh, um, vision that we have can be loud. Just on the day of the Super Bowl in the year 2000, Rick Riley in his Sports Illustrated column wrote a, a, his column that day was called Two Men, Two Flips of Fate. It posted after the Super Bowl. And it told the story of two NFL stars of the National Football League. Two days, two seatbelts unbuckled, two horrible accidents in two places at two different times. The two players were St. Louis Pro Bowl wide receiver Isaac Bruce. He crawls out of his crushed vehicle hardly needing a Band-Aid. And his wife gets out, uh, his girlfriend gets out fine too. The other, Kansas City Chiefs Pro Bowl linebacker Derek Thomas, is carried away by an ambulance with no feeling in his legs and his best friend is dead. That Sunday Super Bowl found each of them in much different places. Bruce sprints down the sideline in Atlanta's Georgia Dome, turns for a spiral, catches it in front of one defensive back, ducks under another, flashes into the end zone to give the Rams the winning touchdown that up until then was the most thrilling Super Bowl finish ever. And he's covered in hugs. When asked about that catch, he says, that wasn't me. Bruce says, that was all God. I had to make an adjustment on the ball, 
God did the rest. Thomas, though, after six hours of emergency surgery on January 24th at Miami's Jackson Memorial Hospital, he woke to find himself paralyzed from the chest down. His Super Bowl Sunday goal was to find the courage to let himself be lifted out of his bed and into his wheelchair for the very first ride into a future he never, ever dreamed of. In Atlanta, Bruce's tomorrows are all limos and roses. He wears a Super Bowl championship hat, a Super Bowl championship t-shirt, and a smile you can't buy. Coach said, told me to, coach told me to work hard and good things will happen, Bruce says, and he was right. In Miami, Thomas wears a rigid collar around his neck, a plastic shell around his chest, and a deadness in his eye that you can't miss. He hasn't shaved. He's hardly eaten in a week. Two men, two flips of fate. Riley, in interviewing Bruce a couple of days later, says, do you ever think about Derek and say that could be me? Oh, no, Bruce says, not at all. Why not, I ask. Because as I was flipping, I threw my hands off the wheel and I called out Jesus' name. Does that mean God doesn't love Derek Thomas, I asked? Oh no, Bruce says. I don't know what Derek said as his car was flipping. And Riley says, well, what about Payne Stewart? Payne Stewart's a pro golfer that was killed in a plane crash earlier that year. Personal friend of Riley, by the way. What about Payne Stewart? He was a Christian man. Does that mean God didn't love Payne Stewart? I have no idea what Payne Stewart said in the plane that day, Bruce says. Well, are you saying if Payne Stewart had invoked the name of Jesus Christ, he'd be alive today? Oh, definitely. And Rick then asks, hailing from Aurora, Colorado, who's sent his kids to Columbine High, says, what about the Columbine student who was asked by one of the killers if she believed in God? She said yes, and he blew her away. How can that be? You don't know what she said, do you? Well, there were witnesses, but you weren't there, right? And Riley ends his column by saying, two men, pray for them both. See, I share this because the writer is our presence in that story. He's there representing us. His readership is the world that's listening to a voice, listening to a message. And what interests me is that one of the messages is a proclaimer of the kingdom, and he's doing it at a volume that he sees fit. And when the writer who represents us, also a Christian, by the way, when he hears it, it doesn't hit him right. And I'm reminded of Jesus because he had a warning about entering the kingdom of heaven. He said, let me get this to go here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Go away, you doers of evil. Wait, prophecy? Casting out demons? Deeds of power? All gifts given by who? 
All gifts given by the Holy Spirit, you find those in, in two of the spiritual gifts list all through uh, uh, scripture that we have. What's the problem? What's missing here? Enter the parables of the power of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it's not the deeds, but it's the volume at which they're being proclaimed. So he spoke another parable to them and said, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Leaven. Nice biblical word for what? Yeast. When a woman, which a woman took and hid in three pecks or three measures of flour until it was all what? Until it was all yeasty. Until it was all leavened. First, I want you to note as we look at this parable, the yeast itself. I want you to to understand that it's been preached many, many times and I've heard it written and taught that yeast somehow is a corruption of bread. That yeast can be a corruption of it and that somehow unleavened bread is a purer form of bread. Dr. Amy Jill Levine points out in her fantastic book, The Stories That Jesus Told, that she says, while yes, there are places where scripture seems to agree with that, but we note that say at Passover, when yeast is to be cleansed completely from a home, it's only done to remember a time when in the wilderness, yeast couldn't be made, transported, nor used. See, yeast works as long as it has one thing, and what is it? Time. Yeast needs time to work. The one thing that slaves do not have. Slaves never had the time. And they especially didn't have the time uh, uh, the day of the Passover because they were told, don't even sit down to eat the Passover meal. Be standing and ready to go. They didn't have time to start a sourdough starter somewhere. They couldn't transport it. And they certainly didn't have time by the time they hit the wilderness. See, if yeast was looked upon only as a corruption, then why would God allow it in your kitchen for every other minute of the calendar except for eight days of Passover? Leavened bread is a good thing, y'all. It's a good thing. Except for Passover when you're trying to remember what it's like to not have leavened bread. It takes time. And by the way, when, it, when you give yeast time, does it work? Who does it work? Three measures of flour, you know what this will yield? 40 to 50 pounds of dough. That's a ridiculous amount for a household, isn't it? Ridiculous. Even if you're having a feast, 50 pounds of dough is a ridiculous amount. Yeast takes time, and if you give it time, all you need is three measures of flour, and you've got abundance. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. The other thing to point out is that this is the only parable that Matthew brings up in this line of the kingdom of heaven that includes a woman. See, it's the woman. Another point to notice that Jesus uses this particular parable, I believe, because it can be done by a woman. I think it's also the central point of the parable. See, if there's no woman in the parable hiding the yeast in the dough, yeast does what? It does nothing. It sits on the counter or it sits in a little jar bubbling. 
right? It needs who? It needs this woman. How often are God's people referred to as a woman in the Bible? The woman in the wilderness in Revelation is who? The church. We are the groom of Christ or we are the bride of Christ? Israel often is referred to as my daughters of Zion. There are thousands, hundreds, I'm, I'm a preacher, so you know, I, I need to get your attention. I need to speak loudly, so sometimes my numbers get out there, okay? But there are dozens of places in scripture that you and I are referred to as the woman, as a woman. So yeast and a woman who hides it in, I don't think I'm swinging wildly for the fences, to say that this applies directly to the church and how she is to operate in the kingdom. This is about us. Note this too, when we start talking about volume and visibility. How many here has a, has a version that says she mixed the yeast in the dough? If you see that, I just want you to know that's a stylistic choice that is not in the language at all. That biblical word is hidden. It's the word crypto, where we get the word crypt from. Is anything more hidden than something that's inside a crypt? No, because nobody wants to open a crypt to find out what's in it, right? It is hidden, and it's hidden on purpose. It's a purposefully covert operation this woman is taking part in. An inside job for the outside. See, and, the, and, and he continues the theme, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found in what? Hid. When it's found, it was found because it was hidden. And the guy that finds it, his joy takes him all the way back to sell everything he has, and then he goes and buys the field. Guess what? He leaves the treasure hid. Maybe the problem with the Lord, Lord folks that are doing all these great deeds loud and out front in everybody to make sure everybody knows that God is with them Maybe it's simply the volume at which they do it. And maybe it's because they do it out loud and in front of everybody. Because it's missing two key qualities of the kingdom of heaven according to our outside voice. Quiet, invisibility. The cloak that protects us against the temptation to what? The temptation to boast. See, the way that you can read Lord, Lord, is that you can hear Lord, Lord as a boast. Lord, Lord, didn't we? Jesus is saying you've been boasting about doing the deeds. You've been boasting about you having the power to have it. And now you boast to me that you've done that power, which I already know. But I don't know you. Closets, inner rooms, protects us against that temptation, doesn't it? All the work of the kingdom is quietly done behind the scenes, underground, in the crypt. 
all with power that can't be boasted or taken credit for if it takes place in that environment. Yet the works that are loud and upfront are no indication that they belong in the kingdom. And that's what I'm saying is what might motivate them. What is it that then that motivates a lot of us to be so out loud and in everybody's face? Why do we insist on yelling? Well, didn't our scripture reading say to do that, Mike? Right? What I say to you in the dark, tell it where? In the light. And what you hear whispered, what? Proclaim it from the, from the housetops. In other words, what? Yell. Certainly sounds like I've got it all wrong, doesn't it? Are we supposed to be loud? But in light of what we're hearing in our outside voices, from our outside voice, is this really what Jesus means? See, our scripture reading occurs in the middle of Jesus giving instructions to the disciples on their very first evangelistic series, their very first evangelistic journey. They're headed out to the villages to proclaim what? To proclaim the kingdom. This is their first time. This is their first opportunity. Go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. And and it began the way that Mike uh, began it. A disciple's not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like its master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What is he saying about these evangelists? What is he telling them is, you guys are in for a bumpy ride. If they do what they do to me, imagine what they're going to do to you. He's telling them that there will be citizens of this kingdom out there that will be loud and inflammatory and accuse them of being certain things. In fact, it'll escalate into violence. He's telling them that the citizens of this kingdom will actually even kill them because they believe their master worships the devil and so you, by proxy, worship and follow the devil. They didn't believe that Jesus worshiped the devil. They believed he was the devil. He's saying the persecution will be loud. It'll be inflammatory. And it'll be even more violent because he says, don't fear those who can what? You think he'd say that if they weren't all preparing someday to be what? To be killed. By the way, of the 12 guys listening to this and maybe even more, at least of the 12 guys listening to this, all but two of them are gonna die martyrs' deaths. And I would imagine that that circle of followers that Mark says that this is the inside circle, the 12 and the followers, I would probably imagine that a whole lot of them died martyrs' deaths too. But notice he says, do not what? Do not fear for those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who will destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. So, so again, the rhetoric will escalate. It'll be loud. It'll be up front. It'll be louder than anything else. And when that doesn't work, when you disarm them with your quietness and you begin to turn the other cheek, guess what? It's going to go further. And it'll end in the one inevitable place that all violence ends. Except Jesus says, you know what? You don't live here. So don't what? 
Don't have, have no fear. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered. Nothing in secret that, uh, that will not become known. He tells them twice, don't fear. I'll acknowledge right now, because Jesus will acknowledge right now, this place is scary. This place uses scary tactics to get things done. Because in this place, order has to be preserved. People have to be kept safe. Their tactics are loud. They're inflammatory. They're out front. They're in your face. They're threatening. But Jesus is saying, that's the way the kingdom of the world gets things done. You guys, you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, though. And here's how you'll diffuse that. See, in the parables, making clear that our outside voices with the world are nothing like this. If that's the case, then shouting from the rooftop has to have another meaning. It has to have another connotation for those of us who call ourselves members of the bride of Christ. Humility, meekness, hidden. All this in the face of provocation. All this while you're getting your face slapped For some reason, citizens of the kingdom of heaven can still exhibit humility, meekness, and provocation. In fact, meekness, being able to turn the other cheek, is the one quality that inherits us the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said it will even have you inherit the kingdom of the world. The world is yours if you could do this. It's got to come from somewhere. And it has to come from somewhere than, than just a desire to, to, to be right and to be out loud and out front. A desire to win. It has to come from something more than that. And Jesus puts it right in this saying for us. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even if the hairs of your head are all counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than what? than many sparrows. The ability to be able to do this comes from our worth. See, we know it going in that we're worth more to God than anything. So if we're worth more to God than anything, then we don't need our pride to win. We don't need to look right in order to win. We don't need to win in order to win. If he's already placed our value on us long before he ever asked us to go sow and tend and make disciples of the whole world, then our worth can't be wrapped up in our ability to go sow and tend and make disciples of the whole world. And once that pressure is off of us, once that fear is gone, I know of people that that will stand right up here and say, if you don't win people to Christ, then you're not going to be won to Christ. Really? You ever wondered what that says about the character of God? That he actually would keep somebody out of the kingdom because I was too lazy? Does that sound like him? No. And by the way, he doesn't keep me out of the kingdom because of my performance or because I'm lazy. What keeps me out of the kingdom if I quit walking and talking with him and remembering my worth and who I am. And the jewels in the crown is not what gets me in the kingdom. We talk about getting jewels in our crown all the time. What's the first thing you gotta do with that crown when you get to the kingdom? 
You had to take it off and throw it on the ground. And that's what brings us to the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The pearl of great price. The price is set by who? Set by the guy who bought it. Doesn't matter what it's worth, right? In fact, it is worth. If somebody's willing to pay that much for it, that's what it's worth. He sold everything that he had in order to own the pearl. You're his pearl. We're his pearl. The woman is the bride. And the way that we win is we do it hidden. And we do it like yeast. And we don't base anything, our worth, on our performance. You're worth more to him than your performance. You're worth more to him than your sin. You're worth more to him than anything he could ask you to do. You're worth more than the market will bear. Sparrows and hares are worth relatively nothing. Ask me about hares. I know how much they're worth. But, but even them, because they're of us, they're, they're, they're his. So they are important. But he says, but how much more are you? We don't prove our worth by how loud we proclaim. We don't have to be loud. We don't have to be in anybody's face. We don't have to even win if we know that we can do it by our kingdom's rules. All we have to do is be humble enough to do it by our kingdom's rules. Real quick, I shared with you a couple weeks ago Dave Kinneman and Gabe Lyons' book, Unchristian, in 2000. I told you it was, the, uh, um, it was a resultant book of 10, 12 years of research, all of Barna's research on, on what we would call the millennials, what we would call uh, the, the, the generation after generation X, the 16 to 29-year-olds, and how they felt about church and who they were. And one thing that I didn't share, one stat that I didn't share, they, they came to this, one of these conclusions. It says 91% of those who identified as non-Christians between the ages of 16 to 29 said that the first identifier of Christians in today's culture was that they were anti-gay. In fact, if you get through a list, you have to go through a list of five things before you get to anything positive that's said about Christians according to this age group, 91%. Anti-gay, hypocritical, judgmental, irrelevant, yikes, and too political is the way they feel about us. In 2015, in a conference in Boston, a researcher by the name of Dee Alsop, she's the CEO of Heart and Mind Ministries. She shared the, the results of a poll that they had been working on that showed a majority of Americans feel that Christians are the problem, not the solution to the issues we face in North America. In addition, 49% feel that the world would continue receiving aid, having strong social justice proponents, even if Christians weren't part of the equation. In fact, they believe we're getting in the way. And that number is on the rise, even though this, this is what kills me, is that statistics show 
that most of the work that they're talking about is being done by faith-based organizations. But they don't care. Why? Because we've told them how to feel about our faith-based organizations. They're listening to our rhetoric and they don't care if we are doing the work. It's nullifying the work that we're doing. Some of the personal comments she shared also uh, within there that, that they put into categories and they had personal testimony underneath them. These are, these are uh, you know, when you take a poll and they're usually, you know, check, 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 and then there is, how else do you feel about this? And there might be some essays in it. Well, they shared some essays of this poll. One, Christians are against more things than they're for. It seems to me Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're so negative, they seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them. I don't want to be upset all the time. One says, I don't see difference between the way Christians live compared to others. I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than all the other people I know. Some Christians try to act like they have no problems. Here's one of the ones where we can relate directly to the volume in which she's living. She says, Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I'd respect her more if she didn't put on such an act. I know better. She's walking around being very loud about how everything is good because she's a believer in Christ. Well, no matter how big the mask is, we all know different, don't we? And then these will break your heart. I'd like to develop a friendship with a Christian. I'm really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I wish I could find a Christian who'd be willing to spend some time with me. Note, not study the Bible, not pray with or for, but spend some what? Spend some time. I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. Here we go, right up our alley, a Bible study. Listen to what this person wants, though. The Bible really fascinates me, but I don't want to go to a stuffy legalistic church to learn about it. It'd be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or a place like Starbucks. I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc. We all believe that living like a Christian makes us better people, makes us better at all those, right? My wife's threatening to divorce me and I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian. He seems to have it all together. I'm swallowing my pride and asking him to help me. He has to go to the neighbor. And believe me, as an introvert, I'm not the world's best neighbor. And I probably wouldn't know if my neighbor was getting ready to be divorced either. But if we did, we'd be speaking at their volume, wouldn't we? I wish a Christian would invite me or take, her to, take me to his church. I'd really like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What's weird is that I'm 32 years old. I've never had a Christian invite me to church my entire life. So what are we hiding from? What are we covering up when we have to operate at such a volume? 
What are we doing if we have to offer, what do we have to offer if, we're, uh, if we, ha- first of all, have the same definition of success and failure that the world has, or use the same tactics of this world in order to get what we want to get done? Have you ever thought what that does to the image people have of the character of God? So how do we disarm that? First of all, You don't have to fear that God loves you, just as you are. You're his pearl of great price. The other way is to be able to disarm that. We need to go underground. We need to go undercover. If they don't like who we are, then we need to quit giving them what they think that we are and try to show them who we really are. In the book, Gospel Workers, Ellen White says this, to all who are working with Christ, who's she talking to? She talking to pastors? Is she talking to members? She talking to the whole church, right? Talking to us all. To all who are working with Christ, I would say, wherever you can gain access to the people by the fireside, improve your opportunity. Code word, 19th century, fireside means socially. When you live in Battle Creek and Maine and upstate New York, the fire is the place where society happens, right? Winter is a beast. By the fireside. Why? Because it improves your opportunity, she says. Take your Bible, open before them its great truths. Listen to what she says. Your success will not depend on so much your knowledge and accomplishments as upon your ability to find your way to the heart. By being social, coming close to the people, you may turn the current of their thoughts more readily than by the most able discourse. Preaching does not do it. Flawless, truth-centered Bible study does not do it if you do not find your way where? You find your way to the heart by being yeast in the dough, by quietly finding your way and finding that one person. It isn't friendship evangelism. It's friendship, period, That's who we are. I told you before, there's no programs, there's no shortcuts. He didn't use a shortcut with you and me. He loved us and then then just told us, now go love as you've been loved. If you do that, the kingdom's yours. It's the reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive And hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Why? The people in the poll just told us they're listening to another voice. They don't hear the outside voice. That's why they don't hear. That's why they don't understand. Hidden, quiet, humble. Not even mentioning who we are unless we're asked. That's the verse I should have put up there. Peter said, always be ready. Always be ready with an apology. And when he says apology, he's not talking about being sorry for something. He's talking about apologetics, the way to be able to explain something spiritual to somebody who is not spiritual. 
Always be ready with an explanation, an apology to everybody who asks about the hope that lies within you. You're not allowed to talk about who you are, your identity as a church member or a Christian until they ask you. And I'm just saying that today they quit asking whether we were Christians a long time ago and we keep yelling at them that we are. We need to begin to use our outside voice as he did with the parables. It takes an outside voice on the inside. Yeast, treasure of great price. Hidden, quiet, humble. That's Jesus, which means that's us. Thank you for a little extra time. I'm having fun with this. I hope you are too. Happy Sabbath, everybody.